With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. HN Podcast with Miller and Dace. Time for another week of topics, and there are several college football-related topics that were in the news or, you know, it's that time of year where a lot of people, Steve and I have both been here, be it from a writing standpoint of a, or a broadcasting standpoint. You know, Mark Morehouse calls it the horse latitudes of the year. Uh, you're really looking for anything and everything, but there are, there are some decent topics that ex- exist out there. One of them that came up this last week, Steve, was that – Jim Delaney is set to receive a $20 million bonus, whatever you want to call it. And I, I know when you when you look at other CEOs around the country and the type of you know bonuses and compensation packages they get, that's great. And I, I never begrudge a man um, for working his own compensation. But I think what it does is it makes guys like you and I really take a look at Delaney's legacy, what he's meant. And I think that we're actually both of a similar opinion that yeah, this guy's done a lot. This guy's caused a lot of other a lot of his peers to step and fetch. Uh, and there was a time probably five or six years ago, maybe a little bit longer than that, where he was easily the most powerful man in college athletics. And then the SEC network launched. And there was a story last week um, in a newspaper from down south that basically showed the SEC's revenue from their network and how it's dwarfing the Big Tens. So... I don't know where you want to begin on that, but what what do you think Jim Delaney's place in Big Ten history is, what it will be, and is he overrated? I think his legacy is one of tremendous impact, John, but I think he's overrated at the same time. And I'll just give you two examples. Delaney, for our younger listeners, don't really remember how the earth moved and in 1989, when Delaney announced Penn State was going to join the Big Ten. And in the late 80s, independent football was the biggest brand in the sport. Right. Notre Dame, independent. Miami, independent. Penn State, independent. Florida State, independent. Pittsburgh, which had a tremendous run in the 70s and 80s from Tony Dorsett to Hugh Green. Uh, to Ironhead Hayward, to Alex, um, oh, who was the quarterback? That Van Pelt. Um, they were an independent. West Virginia went to a national championship game with Major Harris, independent. Syracuse went undefeated one year with Don McPherson, independent. So in the late 80s, independents were the power brokers in college football. Uh, they could go to any bowl game that they wanted to, other than the Rose. They weren't. In anywhere, which allowed Miami and Penn State to play for the national championship in 1986, which was a major deal back then, although we get that every year now since the advent of the BCS and now the playoff. So the earth moved when Delaney brought Penn State into the league. What ended up happening shortly thereafter, though, timing was poor. Title IX gets installed. A lot of the immediate boost you would have gotten from expanding the league's footprint to the east mitigated by the massive budget cuts that went on as a result. 
the SEC took a look at Delaney's uh, idea and said, you know, it's a great idea. Let's top it. And and they brought Arkansas in from the uh, imploding Southwest Conference, where they were the power program, along with Texas A&M, in the Southwest Conference in its latter years. Uh, they brought Arkansas in, and they brought South Carolina in, who was an independent uh, and was a very good program in the 1980s under Joe Morrison. They brought them in, went to 12 teams, where the Big Ten went to 11, went to 12, split into two divisions, and created a cash cow called the SEC Championship. And its very first year, they had number one Alabama against Steve Spurrier, his first year at Florida. And from there on, they essentially created themselves a national brand without sacrificing their regional identity. That first Saturday in December, right after Army-Navy, for how many years, John? There were two games. Army-Navy early in the day, and then the later game was what? The SEC Championship game. And everybody watched. Nationalized the SEC regional brand. Uh, and then we see this happening with the creation of the Big Ten Network. So the Big Ten comes out with the Big Ten Network in 2007, blows everybody away. Even schools, Northwestern, Purdue, are bringing more money in television revenue than USC. Then in 2007, the Big Ten launches its own network. And it revolutionizes not just collegiate sports, but television sports in general. It gets carriage that... The NFL Network couldn't get and still can't get um, at its launch. And suddenly, Purdue, Indiana, Northwestern are bringing in more television money than Texas and USC. And it just blows people's minds. And the SEC takes a look at that and says, yeah, we want to emulate that, but we're going to wait. Five years go by, six years go by. Seven years later, they launch their own network. And with the Big Ten Network's partner being Fox, the SEC trumps them by going with the biggest brand of them all, ESPN, which, of course, as we've discussed, is in decline, but it's still a far bigger collegiate sports brand than, than Fox's. They go to ESPN. They hire better talent. They allow their color talent, who are actually guys who played in the SEC and are known players, big players, Tim Tebow, Booger McFarlane, McElroy, guys that won SEC championships. And they allow them to give critical opinions. Paul Feinbaum, who's a professional troll, is on the network. Well, Big Ten has several other guys are as employed Big Ten. And if there is analysts uh, on the network. I mean, Jerry, I mean, Leonardo had a cup of coffee at Indiana uh, as a head coach, and, and he's their lead analyst on the whole network. They stick to their own regional brand. They do not try to nationalize. And, and the further round of expansion, they decide we're not going any further north than Missouri. We're going to bring in Texas A&M to open a corridor to Texas, which I think is, is the most underrated factor in the decline of the Big 12, is allowing the SEC in to raid the state of Texas through Texas A&M. And that happened right at a time Mac Brown's career was on the downhill cycle at, at Texas. Mm-hmm. And I think the whole week of the Big 12 has suffered as a result of that. And so yet again, the SEC takes a look at what the Big Ten's idea is. They do it better. And they don't, sacri- they don't, they don't, they don't go for markets. They go for identity, regional identity. 
and through their so and and then they allow their analysts to actually give critical opinions. I mean, we just went through a situation where Miles Garrett, the number one pick in the draft, didn't want to do interviews on ESPN because ESPN SEC analyst Booger McFarland was too critical of him. Could you imagine someone saying, boy, that Howard Griffith is just too critical, man. I'm not going on that now. <laughs> Never in a million years. It's just watch him both for a week in the middle of the football season, and it's a far better product. I've said it for the last two years. It's not even close. And so what we've seen now is the two decisions that Delaney's the most known for, that have been the most impactful in college football, the SEC in two different eras, two different commissioners said, hey, great idea. We're going to do it better. Thanks for the framework. We're just going to copy it, and now we're going to whip them over the top. And now you mentioned it. The SEC network is seven years younger than the Big Ten network. It's worth four times the money. Four and a half billion dollars is what it's worth is. The Big Ten Network is worth a billion and a half. And so what Delaney did is he went out there and said, let's go get Maryland. Let's go get Rutgers, which I think Maryland was a good get. It has turned out to be a good get. But Rutgers is beyond dysfunctional. It's a drain. And looked at market size instead. Meanwhile, the SEC said, we're going to gamble because what we've seen on CBS We've seen on CBS the last 15 years that people in California really do want to watch Auburn versus Georgia more than they want to watch Ohio State versus Rutgers and Michigan versus uh, Maryland. And so we're going to stick with our brand, but we're just going to nationalize our regional brand. And look how it has turned out. It has worked. And they have built a business model superior to the Big Ten, despite uh, having none of these things themselves and be at a dem- at being at a demographic disadvantage in terms of eyeballs. And you go back now and you wonder, you know, the Big Ten went, went, with, uh, went with expanding its regional brand when it brought in Nebraska. Nebraska wasn't about market size. Nebraska was about they're in our footprint and a big national brand. They add to our tradition. I wonder now. In hindsight, because we can we can look at this, the numbers are in, and the SEC is better and bigger and more valuable. And I wonder now, and, you know, when you and I did all those shows in 2009 and 2010, when this was going on, and we were right. You know, I I predicted I was as sure as gravity that three these three teams would be in the Big Ten: Missouri, Maryland, and Rutgers. Two of them were in. And the only reason Missouri didn't win is because Delaney came up with an idea I didn't think he could pull off, which was bringing in Nebraska, which is a bigger coup than Missouri. I think we both agree with that. Mm-hmm. So I wonder, though, if instead of trying to gal- trying to look at TV markets, if the Big Ten would have said, we're going to actually triple down on what we do with Nebraska. We're bringing in Oklahoma with Nebraska, even if that means we got to bring in Oklahoma State. We bring because our and our final Saturday every year. I mean, for 30 years, the biggest, the biggest triple header in college football on ABC every year was Michigan, Ohio State early, Nebraska and Oklahoma mid afternoon, USC and UCLA primetime. If the Big Ten said we're going to have Nebraska and Oklahoma every year, final weekend in the Big Ten West, right after we do Michigan and Ohio State every year in the Big Ten East. If they would have done, if they would have said, we're not going to count markets, we're going to count brands. And the Big Ten's brand is tradition. Penn State, Nebraska, Michigan, Ohio State, four of the seven winningest programs of all time. So we're going to bring in Oklahoma, even if that means we're going to bring in Oklahoma State. 
we'll go ahead and bring in Maryland. So that gives Penn State a natural partner in that part of the country. But if they would have doubled down, John, on brand identity as, as, as a tradition-laden conference, as opposed to counting eyeballs, we now know which which model works best because the SEC went for doubling down on brand identity and they're worth four times as much money. It's almost like the SEC was more confident in their brand beyond the borders of just their conference. So they did go down and get brands and shore things up where the Big Ten didn't. The Big Ten went out. The Big Ten went out, Steve, and built their business initially around the traditional cable bundle model of trying to go out and secure um, universities that would help you get the tier one rate in as many cable out cable homes as possible and that's why they went and got Rutgers. Um, you know, Maryland is a nice little pickup along those lines as well because they're in a very populous area. But Rutgers was purely a cable model tier one football play to where you could get, you know, a dollar for every household as opposed to 20 or 25 cents per every household like you would get the other way. And I agree with you. Now, it, it's easy to sit here in hindsight and say this, but I also think whenever we were doing these shows, as you mentioned, in 2009 and 2010, and I don't know have any. I don't have any way to uh, know the correct answer to this or not. But I can't imagine too many talk radio shows in the country talked about this topic with more hours and more instances than you and I did at that particular point in time. I think we were we were in favor. You and I wanted the brands at that time, but we also would then say, okay, this is what we want, but this is what I think that the conference is going to do. And we were we were pretty well in line all during that time with what the Big Ten was going to do, as you mentioned, only missing out uh, on Missouri. They went and got Rutgers and Maryland instead. Missouri could have been in the Big Ten had they kept their mouth shut and, uh, you know, kept their cards to the vest and not, I don't want to say embarrassed themselves, but I, don't, I think Delaney quickly realized that he didn't want them to be uh, a dance partner with the way that their brass in their university was talking about business out of school, so to well, speak. Well, they turned out to be they turned out to be another Rutgers, John. I mean, the, what, what ended up happening, they had a, a flash in the pan their fiscal years in the SEC. Yeah, because they still had the Texas kids from the Big 12. Yeah, their athletic department's in disarray. I mean, they had the whole woke social justice on campus. It destroyed their football program. Their enrollment has imploded. The basketball program is, is just one NCAA disaster head coach after another. I mean, Missouri has ended up as an athletic department. They've become another Rutgers. Well, you're probably right. Actually, Rutgers has more value because of the because of the TV markets, at least for now. So it's not a bad point. I, I like it from a geography standpoint, but I, I think you make a really good point. But Oklahoma in the Big Ten, and, Oklahoma, and like you say, if you're going to bring Oklahoma, if you have to bring Oklahoma State, I don't know that it's as uh, a, much of a political football as some people think. Both Oklahoma and Oklahoma State, each of them has a separate board of regions. They are not governed by the same board of regions. They are separate. I don't believe it's as politically loaded as, say, what you have in the Texas legislature with a lot of Baylor alums uh, in Congress and how we've talked about that before. So I, I don't know that Oklahoma State has to come, but if you just did it from a number standpoint, I, I think it's good. Now, last week down, um, Barry Trammell and the Oklahoman had a couple of articles, one last Sunday and then a, a couple of days later he followed it up when he received an email from a professor from the Big Ten saying that you know maybe Oklahoma doesn't have to worry as much about not being an AAU member as 
they might think. Since Nebraska, although Nebraska was a member of the AAU and the Big Ten was courting them, and the Big Ten was aware that Nebraska might lose its AAU status, and then they did lose it. And the AAU is just basically a consortium of research institutions across the country that, that work together, pool together, and, and, and work together to get a lot of, a lot of money for, for grants and research and things of that nature. I, I, I still think, and as you and I talked about last week, Steve, with the failing, with the failing cable model and how the Big 12's TV money is no guarantee beyond this contract because they basically were paid you know, slush money, if you will, to keep the Big 12 together and from several programs going to the Pac-12 and, and devaluing ESPN's live broadcast inventory. The money won't be there to do that this next time. So I think it's fait accompli that Oklahoma, you know, Texas, Oklahoma State are going to have to find a new home i'd love to see personally oklahoma in the big 10 now i I live you know less than two hours from norman i live even closer to stillwater you know i live just north of tulsa so i'd I'd like to see both of them in there because it would it would bring big 10 football right into my wheelhouse down here and i could actually listen to sports talk radio and the water water cooler conversations at the office would be great i don't know that that will happen or not but i would certainly sign up for it i would too I mean, could you imagine bringing the Nebraska-Oklahoma rivalry back every year? That would be fantastic. I mean, it would be just absolutely fantastic. I would sign up for that tomorrow. And I think, and I think when things get reshuffled, I think you will see more thinking along these kinds of lines. I think there will be less value on academic affiliations, less value on eyeballs in, in Tier 1 cable markets, and more on regional and brand identity because – there's so much money now in the that, that in that college football playoff that enhancing your conference's brand identity from a comp- competitive standpoint will matter more in terms of value now than just counting prospective balls you can reach in a particular market with your product. Yep, I think that you're right. And Delaney, I think, has a secure legacy um, for his time. For his era, the the Big Ten Network was the most successful startup cable network in the history of uh, cable television um, when it launched, only to be surpassed by the SEC. I, I do like your point, counterpoint, historical references tonight with regards how the SECs kind of sat back or, you know, if, if anything else, maybe Jim Delaney is the innovator, the aggressor, and the SEC has just come in and done what he's done better by sitting back, waiting and watching. Um, there was there was a company that used to sponsor a lot of college football games when we were kids. I don't remember what they were called, but I remember their tagline, tagline in their ads. You might remember this. We don't make a lot of the products you buy. We make a lot of the products you buy better. Was that 3M? And that's what the, is that who that was? I'm not sure was, but that's what the SEC has done. <laughs> You're right. I think it might be 3M, like a chemical company that makes things better. Um, that could be an oxymoron. But yeah. All right. Uh, moving on. Other, other, another topic that popped last week, and, and Steve, for the life of me, I can't recall the genesis of this. Um, if it was just something somebody was banding around to, to make bowl games more interesting, more entertaining. You and I talked last week how as we see the future of college football unfolding, we see less and less emphasis of importance on the bowl games, glorified 
scrimmages, though they've always been, we see more and more of this, especially if the college football playoff expands to eight, as you think it will, when they are all looking to regain some of the money they're going to lose when the you know next TV rights roll around and the, the historic cable bundle isn't there in 2026. Um, we talked about you know having bowl games be a nice showcase for the younger guys in your program, uh, things of that nature. Well, somebody tossed out last week to go one further, and I love this idea actually, to allow red shirts to participate in bowl games because the red shirts are all there going at it uh, in practices leading up to the bowls. One of the, one of our favorite thing amongst the Iowa media was always to ask Kirk uh, in press conferences right before the bowl games. Hey, you know, what are some of the, the freshmen out there? What are some of the guys that have really opened your eyes during bowl prep with all these extra 15 practices? Someone tossed out there to allow red shirts to participate in bowl games. I think that would be phenomenal. Well, this is in relation to a rule that has been proposed that will that essentially says the ratio and how many snaps that we have to play with every year when someone plays early in the year or they get injured, can they still redshirt? That what's what you will be allowed to have played in four different games during the course of the regular season, any four regular season games, and still be considered a redshirt, so that they're not trying to. Uh, mathematically figure out who applies in in terms of total snaps and it's much more cut and dry like what happened with the outstanding defensive end at the University of Iowa a couple of years ago for example yeah Juwad is this a a proposal or is this one done maybe this one snuck past me this is an actual proposal that is being discussed okay some some of the college football pundit has said let's take this one further and let's let redshirts play in bowl games. Mm-hmm. And, I, and, and I think if you want to salvage the bowl system, I think that you need this. And here's why. I think, I think you're going to see a lot more Leonard Fournette's and Christian McCaffrey's. No doubt. I don't think there's doubt about that. Okay? Now, I don't know if we're ever going to see somebody set out a playoff. Or, or even a Rose Bowl, if it's not in the playoffs, kind of a game. And I, I definitely think that is something an NFL draft would hammer a prospect for. But if you're not in one of those games, I think you're going to see more McCaffrey's and Fournette's. And how do you offset that? You need to give people more reasons to watch, not less. What could be another reason to watch? Okay, well... Um, I want to know, you know, I want to know what kind of what kind of team Florida will have next year. I'm a Florida fan. We've won the SEC East two years in a row, but offensively, we haven't been that good. This Felipe Frakes kid was a big time recruit. He's redshirting this year, and you know what? I'm going to tune in to that Outback Bowl against Iowa because I want to see that kid play because he's he's got his shot. And, it's, and, and because these red shirts, if you guys know college football, what a lot of fans may not realize is during the season, guys who red shirt don't get a lot of reps. It's, it's nearly zero, actually. And, the, and then from the end of fall camp the, until the bull practices, essentially red shirts are largely ignored, except, except for scout team reps. That it's those bowl practices 
when they truly get a chance now to go ones on ones, twos on twos, threes on threes, when it's even up and you really get a chance to see what a kid is capable of, those bowl practices where a lot of redshirts make their initial move on a college football team. Hmm. So that's the perfect time to, to put that kind of pipe in. Hey, we want to see what kind of team are we to have next year? You know, when this guy takes over for so-and-so, this is an excellent way to pass the baton from one generation of superstar to the next. I think when you look at the, the, the sport that we have now, and we've talked about this in the past, it's not as simple as it was when we were growing up of just counting returning starters anymore. It, it just doesn't work anymore. And trying to figure out um, who's really going to be good next year and who's not. I think the curiosity factor of knowing who are some of those star players that are going to emerge and giving them a chance to play, I think it adds a layer of drama and interest, intrigue into the bowl season outside of those you know, New Year's Six and playoff games that just frankly isn't there right now. No, I, I totally agree. If this, if this proposal comes to fruition, let, let's just say hypothetically that freshmen – Freshmen are allowed to play four games, or, or you're allowed to play four games in a season and still be able to redshirt, whether it's injury, whether it's just whatever, whether it's a tryout. Um, I, I'm, I can see several scenarios playing off of this. One of them I can see, let's say you're Iowa and you know, you're through you know, eight games of the season or nine games, depending on if they make your bowl game exempted or if that counts as one of your four. So let's say you're through nine games and you're five and four. Um, things aren't going well. You're not likely going to play in a great bowl game regardless at this stage of the game. But there's there's been a couple of kids on scout team that have really caught your eye. You know what? We need to start rebuilding for next year. And Kirk, yeah. Kirk is somebody who thinks even freshmen like a Drew Watt playing his freshman year late in the year when I was irritated that his red shirt was burned. A.J. Eads a number of years back where he played late and we were like, why are you doing that? And Kirk says, you're just going to play faster next year because we know we have to count on you next year. So we'd rather you have your big eyeballs moment out of the way um, and get past that. I definitely think you could see a lot of young kids playing um, in that scenario. Or if you're Michigan or rather in Ohio State, and, and Michigan wants to get back to that, historically they are, you're rolling along and you, you, you're signing five-star phenoms every year. You get to game nine, you know what? Great wide receiver gets hurt. You got a five-star has been turning heads. You plug a guy right in. I, I, I think it's a good thing. I love it. I mean, the SEC has that week that they do before rivalry weekend when they all play FCS. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And and that's where, you know, you've got big-time recruits. You put them in, and suddenly I'm a fan, and I'm like, you know what, man, I'm going to watch this weekend's game against Arkansas State because so-and-so is going to play. I mean, look at Alabama. You have Jalen Hurts, the, st- the sophomore sensation quarterback, who was SEC Offensive Player of the Year as a true freshman last year. They bring in this kid, Tua Tagliaboa, I think is his name, this five-star recruit that's supposedly the next Marcus Mariota because he's a spread quarterback from Hawaii like he was. 
Well, you know, we have seen this wrath of high school, uh, you know, um, quarterbacks transferring. Alabama just had two last year, Cooper Bateman and Blake Barnett, both big-time recruits. They transferred to other schools. Well, your ability to retain some of these guys, if they know right. two or three games of the year, they're going to get meaningful action so scouts get them on film facing actual bullets. You can begin building that resume. Um, I think it's a tremendous idea, and it and and there was more of this back in the day when we were little kids, and you know you were at 100, 115 scholarships, and so you know you didn't have to redshirt as many guys as, as, as anymore because you had so many scholarships that were available, and 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 a lot of those times there was there wasn't nearly the parity in college football then either, so you were playing in a lot of blowouts if you were a tier team. I think this brings a lot of that back. This brings back, you know, an opportunity for a lot of guys to get a chance to be seen. I, I think right now we're living in an era where there is so much competition for people's money and attention. You need to give them as many reasons as possible to invest those that the, both of those finite resources into your product. I think this is an outstanding idea. I mean, somebody, some people might say, well, the true fans, Steve, they're going to be watching regardless. But I'm going to be brutally honest here. Um, and maybe I shouldn't be, but I'm not going to change my stripes now. I'm 46. And September and October, weather down here in Oklahoma, and I remember what it was like in Iowa, and I'm planning on starting to play a lot more golf in my life. You know, the last 20 years have been about, you know, humping it and busting it, and not that that won't keep happening. But I want to play more golf. I love the game of golf. And September and October is about the best time of the year to golf down here. And Sundays are for church. Saturdays are sometimes to let dad go play golf. They're, that, that's right there every single Saturday due to, you know, if, if I didn't have you know, work obligations that I do enjoy, I probably would be um, recording a lot more football games and come back and catch them later that night. So you're right. There is a great deal of competition for your time. You know, parents having their kids in two and three sports in the same season and all these things going on the weekend. So I, I think you're exactly right. Another thing I wanted to talk about that comes in line with this I don't know if there's any necessarily any extra recruiting advantage or disadvantage for certain schools if that, you know, they can play in four games rule would come about or not. But there is something that that did get passed officially this past week, and that is the new uh, signing period for college football. So we that with that second or third week in December that has traditionally been reserved for the junior college players or high school seniors who have graduated early and can enroll in the spring, that is going to be an opportunity for kids to sign letters of intent that are binding, binding letters of intent at that point in time. And then there'll be the second signing period. That's the first Wednesday in February, as it has been for a long time. And I've long been of the position that something like this is certainly good for Iowa. I'm not going to sit here and say that it's great and it's a game changer, but if you're Iowa and you have gone out and you found some diamonds in the rough and you don't want Michigan to swoop in and steal a Karan Higdon on signing day, something like this does one of two things. You either get them signed, they're in the live well, and they can't flip out on you on signing day, or, as Jerry Tarkanian used to say, 
I know who my competition is. Because if these kids don't sign with you on that day, then you know you may still have some work to do and or you need to begin also recruiting that position more strongly with other players because those kids may be at risk from flipping. With your analysis um, about this rule, I think that, I think in general it's bad for college football. I think it's good for programs like Iowa and Iowa State. I think it's bad for the recruits and the players. Let me take one each of those one by one if I could. In terms of being bad for college football, signing day is an event. We now have the SEC network, ESPN, CBS's sports network, the Big Ten network, which finally figured this out a few years ago. They go wall-to-wall coverage with college football in, the, in, the, in, the early, in early February. And it's the first time that we truly know everybody's rosters for the next season. It's a major event. It's made for television. I think watering it down and diluting it, bad for the sport. And I think you have, you, have an, you have an event of that magnitude. I think you actually want to enhance it, not water it down. Especially because, let me skip the second part and go to the third. I don't believe you can pay players. Title IX won't allow it. There's certainly money to pay football and men's basketball players. But you know, the money and revenue to pay every last scholarship athlete isn't there. Uh, so Title IX is not going to allow it. But I am in favor, and I've said this on this podcast several times the last couple of years, I'm in favor of virtually anything else in, that, that favors the players. Mm-hmm. The, more and more, the more and more money that's at stake, the more pro player I become. Because they're the ones putting the most on the line here. Uh, because they're the ones donating their bodies to the activity. Their sweat, their time, talent, and treasure. Okay? The sweat equity. And I'm all for an early signing period. But I think this December one is bad for the players. Because they lose leverage. The leverage here goes to the programs because of what you just said about schools like Iowa and Iowa State, and I'll get to that in a moment. Coaches can really leverage these young men now. And then if you are that three-star prospect from Ohio that Ohio State didn't offer because they thought they were going to get a five-star kid out of Jersey instead, and then they didn't. Well, that early signing, that kid decides, you know, the day before signing day or the day of – well, you know, that early signing day comes by. You've got your you got a you got a scholarship to Michigan State. And they're leaning on you. Hey, we're your only Big 10 offer. You have to take it. Then we get to the day before signing day. That five-star in New Jersey says, "Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to Penn State instead." Well, Ohio State would have called you. That would have been your dream school. So, I I I'm I'm not in favor of anything that takes leverage away from the players. I I'm I, I think they deserve to have the leverage because they're the ones making the most investment. And if you have an early signing period, then you give, then you do what basketball does, which I'm in favor of. What does basketball do? Well, we have an early signing period in November. Why November? So kids can sign if they wish to before their basketball seasons begin to get it out of the way. And then the next signing period is when? It's in April and May. Why? Because the basketball season is over. So why do we do first week of February? Football is over. Well, if you want to have an early signing period, it only seems to me, especially because you're allowed, you passed the rule that said, which is good for all of the Big Ten, we're now going to allow early official visits in your junior year so you can actually go to Iowa in the summertime now Mm -hmm. and not, you know, when it's minus 20, desolation, as you like to call it. Well, if we're going to do that, then let's have an early signing period in September, the Wednesday right after Labor Day. 
when most kids are just starting their seasons. And they can choose then if they want to get it out of the way or not. They want the calls to end, the letters to stop, so they can focus on their season. Mm -hmm. And then if they don't, then we see you in February. I think this takes leverage away from the players, and I think it gives it to the programs. I'm not in favor of that in any, on any level because of, 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 the, of the imbalance we have in resources in this sport. Now, who this is good for, as you pointed out, is programs like Iowa and Iowa State that are developmental programs. Now, obviously, Iowa's developmental program is at a different level than Iowa State's. But, you know, I remember the first meeting I ever had with Gene Chizik when he took over the Iowa State job, and I still ran Cyclone Nation. And he called me into his office and he said, hey, you know, you got a pretty good read on the kid we're recruiting. I've got a couple of them I'd like you not to call and do stories on. And I said, why? He said, because, and one of them I remember was a defensive tackle out of Oklahoma. He said, because I used to coach at, this, at Texas and Clemson and the Auburn and the schools that did this. They sit around, they go for their big-time kids, they get to the last 48 hours of signing day, they don't think they're going to get that kid. So they, get, they, they then go down to the best developmental prospects that are already committed to the other Power 5 schools or the Hour Power Conference schools, and they raid your players. And I think this kid's really good. Now, he ended up going to Oklahoma, as I recall, anyway. Right? But he goes, I think this kid's really good. I want to keep him under the radar. I don't want Oklahoma to know that their former rival defensive coordinator at Texas got a commitment out of this kid because they're going to look at him when last month they didn't know who the kid was. So you mentioned Kron Higdon. I, was gonna use, I, I plan to use that here in our podcast. Kron Higdon is a specimen. He is perfect for Iowa's system. He is a one-cut burst runner. The problem he has in Michigan is he's definitely Mr. Downhill, you know, and that's that's Harbaugh style. So he's in this running back by committee. Where in Iowa, in a zone scheme, a one-cut runner with burst, that's perfect for what Iowa is, looks to do. A player, a, a running back who know who can see where the hole is, makes one cut and and explodes through it. But. In the, in, in, if we had this rule now, it would be wearing a Hawks jersey. Instead, he's wearing a Michigan jersey. So programs like Iowa and Iowa State, who don't want to have their prospects rated by uh, programs that are recruiting at a higher level in those last few days, this is excellent for them. No doubt about it. But I think it's bad for players in general because it takes leverage away from them and gives it to the programs. And I think it's bad for the sport because it's going to heavily dilute what is a made-for-TV spectacle that draws a lot of eyeballs. And I think that's always good when you can do that in your offseason. And there's one more aspect of this too, John. December 20th or whenever this is, is right in the middle of the coaching silly season. Mm -hmm. Guys are coming or going. So, again, you want a kid to sign on with a school? Like, let's take Western Michigan as an example. So this past year, P.J. Flex says no to Purdue because they don't want to let him wait until his bowl game. All right, so you're one of those kids that goes and signs with Western Michigan on December. Is P.J. Flex going to tell you December 20th? Hey, you know what? I may take another job somewhere else. The bowl game is over. Wait, I doubt it. So you go, so you go sign all those kids at Western Michigan, and then you leave in the Minnesota. Well, you know what? Minnesota's recruiting class this year, half of it was kids who let, who were originally committed to Western Michigan. So how would that have worked in the midst of a coaching change? The timing of this, I just think, from a player perspective, is very poor. Right. If they want to let, they want to help kids. Let's do this early September so they can get out of the way and focus on their season if that's what they want. Right. And, and, and if they don't want that, then they have all the leverage between up until signing day. Yeah, I think you have the points that you could support 
what you believe and feel um, as opposed to this last one. I mean, college basketball, whenever coaches leave, the, the kids are released from their letters by and large. But you, but your point still stands. I, I understand your objection, and, and there's some validity to it. All right, that's going to do it for this week's edition of the HN Podcast. For Steve, I'm John. We will talk to you soon.